children are dismissed for Children's Church, please turn your Bibles to the 150th Psalm, Psalm 150. And as we do that, let's begin with some prayer. I could use prayer. You could pray for my combobulation. Um, I'm discombobulated at the moment. I have a severe head cold. But God um, likes to perfect his power through our weakness, so I trust he will give grace. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the privilege and the honor of being able to call you Father, and we thank you for the richness of your word which you have given us. And so, Lord, now I just pray that you would establish your word as that which creates reverence for you. Lord, that you would um, not let my limitations limit the effectiveness and the efficacy of your word that you would send it forth and it would accomplish what you would have it accomplish. And Lord, I just pray that you'd well up within our hearts a joy and desire to praise and worship and serve you, that your word instructs and commands. In Jesus' name, amen. The 150th Psalm. We began our study in the Psalms about two years ago. And since then, we've looked at about 31, 32 Psalms. Um, the Psalms are broken into five books, and we looked at five or six from book one, and then we studied First Timothy, and then we looked at five or six from book two, and we studied Titus, and, and we've been alternating back and forth, and I, and I hope in the future we will again return to the Psalms, but this morning marks the, the end of this first round. We looked at about a fifth of the Psalms. And we, we close appropriately with the final Psalm, Psalm 150. It is short. It is six verses. It is profound. And it is most certainly placed there by the compiler, whoever the post-exilic compiler was, um, because of its emphasis on praise. In fact, as we read it, you'll see that the, the exhortation, the imperative command to praise God, to praise the Lord, occurs 13 times. So let's read the 150th Psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You get that emphasis? 13 times, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And this psalm in six verses gives us the where and the why and the how and the who of praise. But before we can look at those four points, we need to talk about what praise is. And if this 13 times we're told to praise God. What does it mean to praise God? Well, the best explanation I can give of what the, the Hebrew is getting at is it's a response of my whole being, it's a response of my affections, it's a response of my mind and my will to the excellence or the value or the worth that I see in something, that you see in something. I've said this before, but we can think of praise as, oh, God wants us to praise him again. I guess he needs his praise fix. That's not the way to think about Praise. Praise is the overflow. It happens naturally when we see something that is pleasing to us. 
I've used this example before, but if you're watching a, a sporting event, a football game, and, and somebody against all odds is breaking through the, the defense and they're, they're going to go down and, and score, a, it's a touchdown, right? That's football. They're going to score. What happens? People do not think, especially if it's their team, they don't think, well, this is a praiseworthy occurrence. I should probably make some sort of vocal noise to, to demonstrate my affinity and my affirmation of what I'm seeing. No, they're up on their feet. And they're, they're glued and out of their mouth comes praise. And if the runner, if the, if the guy with the ball makes it into the end zone, they're, they're praising, right? It happens naturally. It, it, we're hardwired for praise. When you see a beautiful sunset, you don't think it, it would be fitting and appropriate for me to say something in, in praise of this gorgeous sun. No, you go, wow. I just came from the Rocky Mountains yesterday. I flew out on Friday morning and flew back last night from a wedding. My wife's brother got married. And it is absolutely stunning to see the Rockies. And when you're looking at that, and you're look, it just, it's gorgeous. Again, praise just rolls off the tongue. It ha- it, in fact, it completes the joy. And you know that feeling. You've seen a great movie, and you're looking for someone to talk to it about. Because the joy that you had in, in watching that movie or watching that game is completed by praise. And, and so it is with God. When God calls on us to praise him, do not think of him, as C.S. Lewis said, as some vain old woman who wants everyone to tell her that she's pretty. But rather, God knows that we were made to enjoy him. God knows that we were made to worship him, and our fullest joy and our fullest satisfaction comes in worshiping him. And so this psalm is, is calling on us to praise the Lord, and that's what it's, it's calling on us to do. It's not calling on us to mouth things or to say things we don't believe. And so, of course, that means that if, if we're not in a place where we can do this, we need to cultivate our hearts to praise him. But we're to look now at the where of praise and the why of praise and the how and the who in these six verses. So let's dive into where to praise the Lord. In the first verse, uh, after giving the opening call, notice that the psalm is, is begun and ended with this sort of bookends, praise the Lord, in case there's any doubt of what the emphasis and the main point of this psalm is. It's clear. It, it goes into a parallel couplet. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. And there's some division over what is meant by this couplet. Some commentators think that the sanctuary um, is reference to God's heavenly sanctuary. And, and God's heavenly abode is sometimes referred to in the scriptures as his sanctuary. If that were the meaning, then what's being said here is sort of um, synonymous parallelism. Praise him in his heavenly sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. It's possible, but I don't think so. Um, I, I think... The, the, the parallel here is between heaven and earth. Praise him in his sanctuary, by which I think they mean the temple at the time of composition, possibly the tabernacle, depending on when Psalm 150 was written, and praise him in his mighty heavens. The reason I think that is the instruments that are listed are instruments that we know took place in the earthly worship of the Lord. We're not aware of any angels playing instruments. They may, they may not. But we are aware that many, if not most, of these instruments listed here are listed as things the Levites and the Israelites would use in the worship of God. And so it seems far more likely to me that what is being um, said here is praise him in heaven, in his heavenly sanctuary, and praise him in his earthly sanctuary, the temple, or in the 
um, tabernacle, depending on when that is done. And if that's the case, then the emphasis is this. Where, where should praise begin? It should begin where he is present with his people. Every time we look into heaven, we see the angels worshiping and praising God, don't we? Every time. They, they cover their eyes, they cover their feet. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so where God is particularly present, even though God is everywhere, we know that he's particularly present in heaven. And during um, the time of, of Israel as, as a nation before him, he was particularly present in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so praise begins where God is present with his people. And the second thing we see is it is where his rule is recognized. Now, God is sovereign over all the earth. He's sovereign over all the universe. He's sovereign over every molecule in space. And yet, men and women on earth rebel against him. And so we, we see again that praise is starting where he is with his people, his, his subjects, whether it's the heavenly subjects or the earthly subjects. And it's where his rule is recognized. That, that's where praise begins. It's not going to end there. By the end of this psalm, it's going to go out into all creation and everything that has breath, but it's starting with God's people. That makes sense, doesn't it? The, the praise of the universe, which is where we're going to, starts with God's people, whom he rules over. And what that means is, for, for you and for me, that praise should start with us. Because one of the benefits of the new covenant is that the Spirit of God no longer dwells in the tabernacle and dwells with the ark, with the Shekinah glory. But where, where does, where's God's tabernacle now? Where is God's temple now? It's us. You are the temple of God. I am a temple of God. And as we come together as the church in 1 Corinthians, corporately we are the temple of God. Where does God dwell? He dwells in us. His spirit lives within us. So where should praise begin? Us. Right? Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. That'd be here, us. Praise him in heaven. And what we're being called upon is to reflect and to imitate the praise we see in heaven. So every time you get a glimpse of praise in heaven, think that that's supposed to stir us up. That's supposed to, we are to reflect that. And the saints who have, who have gone before us, who are no longer on earth, they are praising God right now. And we are invited in this psalm to join in. And then after we have time of communion this morning, We'll have a chance to sing and to do that very thing. We've been doing that very thing this morning. Where, where should praise begin? It begins where God is ruling his people. He's with his people. That's where it begins. Next, verse 2, why? This, the psalm tells us where. Where's, where's the starting point of praise? Secondly, why praise the Lord? And again, we could list myriads of reasons, but the pattern we see regularly in Scripture is, A, for who he is, and B, for what he has done. We saw this last week. Praise him for who he is and what he has done. And I remember I said last week with Psalm 145 that it, it introduces, it's the final word before the final five Hallel Psalms. And that theme is picked up here. It says, praise him for his mighty deeds. That's what he's done. Um, at the time of this writing, they probably have the exodus from Egypt mostly in mind. That seems to be the, the saving deed the Lord has done that most gets emphasized in the Old Testament, but it could be his deliverance from their enemies. It could be his spiritual deliverance from sin. Certainly this side of the cross, when we think of God's mighty deeds, we, we primarily think of sending of his son. We think of 
the Son of Man dying on a tree for our sins. That, that's, that's the mighty deeds we praise him for. We, we think of him calling us and drawing us and giving us life while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our sins. We praise him for his mighty deeds. And we praise him for who he is. Praise, the second couplet here, according or in keeping with or, or in an appropriate relationship to his excellent greatness. And, and we said last week that his greatness is infinite. So what would be an appropriate corresponding amount of praise? An infinite amount of praise, which is why David said in Psalm 145, every day I'll praise you forever and ever. And as we behold God's greatness and as we learn more of his greatness, it should result in praise. This is why theology should always result in doxology. If we're learning about who God is, if we're learning more of the knowledge of God, because that's all theology means, we're all theologians. Even atheists are theologians. They just believe wrong things about God. But theology should always lead to doxology, praise. As we learn more of God's greatness... It should roll off our tongue. And so if, if you're reading books, if you're learning stuff, but you're not becoming a more praiseful person, something's amiss, something's off. Because the purpose of learning about God is not an end in itself. It's just to make us delight in him more, rejoice in him more, praise him more, be satisfied with him more fully. Praise the Lord for who he is and for what he's done. Turn back to Psalm 96. I'll just show you this pattern because it's all over the Psalms. Praising God for who he is, praising him for what he's done. Praising him for who he is, praising him for what he has done. And, and Psalm 96 in the first um, few verses makes this clear. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Now that's who he is. God's name is his character. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That's what he's done. Declare his glory among the nations. That's, that's who he is. His marvelous works among all the peoples. That's what he's done. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's who he is. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. That's what he's done. And if you keep reading in Psalm 96, you'll see it go back and forth. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. And so the study of who the living God is, especially as he reveals himself in his son, and the study of what he has done for us, in creating the universe and sustaining us and saving us, is, is worthy of our study and is to inform our praise. And again, if, if you find praise difficult, it doesn't come naturally, don't fake it till you make it. As Joel Olstein would say, don't, don't do that. But go back and, and, and realize that somewhere the connection between what you know about God and who he is and what he's done isn't making it through to praise. And go back and think about and, and study about and think about and talk about and read about and meditate on who he is and what he's done. Because that is the fuel for praise. And if, and if you're not a praiseful person, if praise doesn't come off your tongue easily, then there's something about who God is or what he's done for you that you're not getting. And I'd go back to that. That is the basis of praise. Why praise the Lord? For who he is, for what he's done. And then in verses three to five, we, we get instruction on how to praise the Lord. And, there, and there's a list here. 
of, of instruments and, and ways of praising God. Praise him, verse 3, with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, crashing cymbals. And, and as you look through here, we've got all types of instruments. Um, trumpet, probably a ram's horn. Not, not the trumpet that Dan plays, but, but a ram's horn. This is a loud instrument. The shofar, used on the Day of Atonement. The stringed instruments, the harp. Um, the lyre. There's, there's all sorts of instruments being used here. Some are for particularly skilled instrumentalists, and some like the, the tambourine or the, the cymbals contrasted with the loud clashing cymbals is probably closer to a tambourine. tambourine. Loud crashing cymbals with dance. And I just want to draw some observations here from, from this list that I don't believe is meant to be exhaustive. Um, so, so before we actually go into this, we, we should probably talk about this for a moment. There are some churches, I don't know if you know of any churches that don't use instruments in worship. I know some of the uh, Church of Christ um, congregations and some other groups don't use instruments. And, and the reason for that is they don't want to do anything in worship that the Lord God has not told us to do. And so they would reason the only instruments that are authorized are things like these. We don't have these today. And so, which isn't actually true, we do have some of these today, but so we, we won't do anything. But I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list, as if these are the, the seven instruments and them only that God would have us use. It seems much more obvious that these are the instruments that Israel had at its disposal. And so God is saying, make use of them all, in all the different ways, in all the, in all the manifest um, skills and means that you have, praise the Lord. So how to praise the Lord? Point A, with diverse praise. With diverse praise. That's clear. That's one of the reasons I'm glad we have multiple worship teams here. Uh, not least of all so that when our pianist is, is away on his honeymoon, you don't just have to deal with me. That would be kind of sad week after week if it was just me on guitar. But we have, the Lord has blessed us with, with singers and instrumentalists, and so we like to make use of all of that. And so we have different worship teams, each with different flavors and, and, and styles, because we recognize that there isn't one right style of music to praise the Lord in. And you go to different cultures, you go to different subgroups, and there's all sorts of different ways to praise the Lord. It's not just with piano or just with an organ or it's not just with any one set of instruments. What we get from this is that there's, there's diversity in praise. You go to different cultures, you'll see that. And it's a more mature body that can handle that. We should grow, into, to, grow to the point where we can worship in different genres and styles that the Lord has equipped us differently with diversity and he's, he's pleased when we use our gifts to serve him. And this sort of spreads out even further to our own giftedness. That the Lord has given you skills, he's given me skills, he's given different people skills, and, and God's glory comes from that diversity. It's the same thing we see in the body. Not everyone's a finger, not everyone's a thumb, not everyone's a toe. But in the diversity, God is glorified. And in diversity of praise, he is glorified. It's not that there's one perfect set of instruments and one perfect arrangement of things, but rather he's pleased when his people praise him genuinely on all these instruments, in all these ways. So we praise the Lord with diverse praise. But point B, we also praise him with unified praise. You see, what's depicted here is not a cacophony. 
The picture is not that often one corner are the tambourine people and often another corner are the lute people and they're just all in their own time signatures and in their own ways just, just doing their thing. Sort of like when you go to a junior high band concert. Sounds sort of close to that. You know. um, it's, it's not like that. It's not like that. This is, this is unified. Think more of an orchestra. An orchestra is an amazing thing. You've got all these different instruments and yet they're all focused together, playing together, worshiping together. And, and that's the picture here. So there's, there's diversity. I mean, we want to celebrate that diversity, but there's unity. And again, just like in the body of Christ, where there's diversity in parts and unity in function, that this worship taking place in the temple was not supposed to be a cacophony. And our worship and our using of our gifts is meant to be in harmony with each other, not in one-upsmanship, but in harmony, as we use our gifts and as we serve each other, as we, as we work together to praise and serve the living God. Diversity, diverse praise, unified praise. Point D, with purposeful praise. Purposeful praise. And that's, that's another implication I get from this. If you're going to have this orchestra, if you're going to have this multifaceted um, worship of God where you've got cymbals crashing and you've got tambourines and dance and lute and harp and trumpet sounding. There's, there's intentionality that goes into this. This isn't accidental. Um, I think sometimes people can get the impression that what happens spontaneously is always what's best. And there is something to spontaneous praise. There's also something to practice. Trust me. You should be very thankful the worship teams practice before they come up here on Sunday morning. I know I am. We practice. It's purposeful worship. It's intentional worship. Um, you can't just trust the Spirit to bring everything together if we're not making use of the time and the resources that God gives us. It's intentional. People don't accidentally, generally speaking, they don't accidentally praise and glorify God. It takes purposefulness. If we're going to obey 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever we eat or drink, do all the glory of God, that, that takes intentionality. It takes purpose. And our praise needs to be intentional. It might take some practice. You might need to hone the gifts that God has given you. So on the one hand, we want to celebrate all the giftedness. We want to celebrate all the abilities of praise. And we want to bring them all together and unify them. But we also want to cultivate them and, and intentionally refine and hone them so we can be good stewards of what God has given us. So it's diverse, it's unified, it's purposeful, but you can't escape the, the fact, point D, that it's passionate. It's passionate. At the very least, we get that from loud, clashing cymbals and from dancing. This isn't some laid-back or stoic praise. This is passionate. I think of David when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Israel, dancing in front of the Ark. This is passionate and powerful praise. Um, turn in Nehemiah. I know that Dave Lample is teaching through this. He hasn't quite gotten this far, but turn to Nehemiah um, chapter 12. And as, as you may know, if you're in Dave's class, or as you will find out next week when we start Zechariah, the context of, of this is that the Israelites have returned from captivity. They've returned from the Babylonian captivity and the temple has been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And in that day, the walls were your defense. Without walls, you're a sitting duck. And they begin to rebuild the temple. They begin to rebuild the walls. And in Nehemiah 12, they dedicate the walls. They're, they're done. And this is a cause for great joy. 
Pick it up in verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. You recognize some of those instruments? And the sons of the singers were gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. And it goes on to describe who's involved in this, but I want you to jump down to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is passionate praise. The surrounding peoples heard this praise. And I guarantee you, if you turn back to Psalm 150, I guarantee you that when the temple worship service was going full bore with the loud and clanging cymbals and with the, with the ram's horn, you could hear it. It was loud. It was passionate. And, and, and there is something about passion. We can sometimes be nervous about passion because obviously passion that's unchecked, that's uninformed, can, can reap bad fruits. But there's nothing godly, there's nothing righteous about a sort of stoic, simple, holy, holy. That, that, that doesn't, that isn't fitting to who God is. And so as we begin to understand who he is and in our, in our hearts begin to re- rejoice in who he is, it should overflow, it should be passionate. We should make a joyful noise to the Lord. And, and point E, one final thing I want to notice about how to praise the Lord. It is with articulate praise. With articulate praise. And by that I mean with words. It's not directly listed here, but, but it is if you look. It's, it's back in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. It takes words to do that. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Again, if we're to expound and rejoice in who God is and what he's done. We're going to need words for that, but it's even more clearly seen in the next verse, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. All the instrumentation and all the symbols and all the ram's horn are meant to accompany the primary vehicle, the primary instrument of the praise of God, which is human voice. Um, John Piper's church a few years back did a, a weekend retreat with the leaders and the worship teams trying to figure out what, what should we be trying to do with praise? What should the praise of the living God sound like? And they came up with a very profound and simple answer. It should sound like people singing. And I don't know if you've been to, I know I have, especially when I was going to youth um, rallies and stuff. You can get to these worship services where you can't hear anyone sing. It's just so loud. I mean, I don't, if you know me, I can sing loud, loudly. There, there we go. I can sing loudly. Um, just trust me on that one. And I've been at some, some of these things where I'm singing full tilt. I can't even hear myself. And I don't know if that's helpful. I, I'm not sure what the people who, who organize it that way are trying to do, but all these instruments and all of this arrangement and orchestra is meant to, to lift up, to sustain, to promote the ultimate instrument that God is, desires to be worshipped by, which is the tongues of his creatures with us 
us. It's articulate praise. And, and that's why lyrics matter in what we sing. It's why God has given us 150 songs to sing to him. I mean, think about that. God didn't just give us one or two. He gave us 150 songs. And there's more scattered throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well. Psalms, songs written. Moses has a song in, in uh, Exodus. And... Because ultimately, we're, we are made to praise God. And all this instrumentation is meant to lift up our voices and, and to accompany and sustain our voices. And so we worship the Lord with articulate praise. So there's a diversity in all of our gifts. There's a diversity in, in the ways that we can praise God, and yet we're to do it in a unified way, in harmony, not in competition, in dissonance. We're to do it with purpose, intentionally, passionately, and all of that ultimately to be articulate, clear. Because um, that's usually the dividing line. Because if, if it was just music and the words didn't matter, we could gather together with all sorts of other religions and just do a big orchestra. The second we start bringing in texts and lyrics, then it starts making a dividing line. I mean, just remember Psalm 96. Yeah, I remember, remember a pastor once saying, it was one of those, I think, Ask Pastor John. John Piper's got an Ask Pastor John podcast, and would he ever go and, and pray at a national day of prayer? And his response was, only if they'd let me pray Psalm 96.5. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Imagine how well that would go over. Because once you bring text in, once you bring words in, now we can't just gather together in a big group hug of all of the world religions. Now we are saying things about God, and we are articulating things about God. And, and if you remember Jesus in John 4, the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship him in spirit and in truth with articulate praise. And finally, fourth point, who should praise the Lord? Well, we started with the praise beginning with his people, where he is present and where his rule is recognized. But now, by verse 6, it is extended. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And that expression, everything that has breath, means living all living things. It's not even limited to people. In Genesis 1.30, um, speaking of the Lord creating the animals and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And then when he makes Adam, the Lord God in Genesis 2, 7, formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So everything that has breath is all creation. All creation. This is, again, is, is echoing the, the sentiments of the final verse of Psalm 145 where, where David says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And so quickly, I just want to make two points from this. Whereas praise begins with God's people, with his subjects, whom he rules, understand that worship is the goal of missions. Worship is the goal of missions. In, in some senses, I don't want to minimize salvation. Salvation is, is a means to an end. It is not the end. We, we, don't, we don't send missionaries, we don't evangelize ultimately for the salvation of the lost. We ultimately do it for the worship and praise of God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. 
Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, revered, reverenced be your name. And in most of the world, God's name is not reverenced. In most of the world, God is not delighted in. And missions and evangelism is an attempt to remedy that for the good of the lost, but ultimately for the praise of the living God. The reason we go out and, and the reason ultimately that we, we send missionaries, the reason why we share the gospel with our neighbor is for their good. Oh yes, it's for their good, no doubt. Not minimizing that at all. But ultimately, the greatest reason is because there's a living God who deserves praise and he's not receiving it. There's a living God who is great and we want to intensify and grow that worship. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord and everything that has breath is not praising the Lord. So what can we do to fix that? Well, we can send missionaries and we can share the gospel with our neighbor. And, and point C, that's because worship is the chief end of all creation. Worship is the chief end of all creation. Everything exists ultimately for God's praise. That, that is the chief end, the ultimate reason why everything was made. Why, why are you here? Why am I here? Why is that chair here? Why is that tree here? It's to serve the purposes and to glorify the living God. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 to 23, speaking of Jesus Christ and his relationship to everything. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. All things are made for him, and through him, they exist for him. He is first place for them. Everything ultimately is to give God glory. And, and apart from man, everything is. The heavens are declaring God's glory. And there's finally one sense in which this, this psalm is prophetic. Because this final psalm extolling, let everything that has breath, let every creature praise God. Ultimately, that exhortation will be fulfilled. Ultimately, everything will praise God. The, the $8 million question is whether we will do it willingly and gladly or whether we will do it when the king comes and triumphs over his enemies, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's the question. In, in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, now there it is. Every knee is gonna bow. Every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it as defeated enemies and some will do it as joyful sons and daughters. And so th this psalm's exhortation will be fulfilled. And for us and for our neighbor, the question is, will we join in singing now gladly and freely? Or will we wait to the day when it is too late and we are conquered and join in, not as the sons and daughters of the living God, but as his conquered foes?
And so as we move now to a time of communion, I think it'd be appropriate to consider that, to think through that. The Lord invites all of us to come who are sons and daughters. The Lord invites all of us to this table which symbolizes his death for us. But if you don't know the living God, if you have not trusted in his son through the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than come to this table, I'd encourage you to come to Christ. And you can do that now, even where you're sitting, by faith, turning from your sin to him in faith, looking upon him, being saved. Because that, that gospel offer is open, and you are welcome to come to Christ, and then in Christ to come to this table. Let's pray. Lord God, we just, we just pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of your Son. We just pray that you would help what we learn from your word to connect to our heart and to our affections so that we would give an appropriate response of praise and thanksgiving, that we would have an appropriate sorrow over our sin, an appropriate and corresponding joy to the remedy for that sin in our Savior. Lord God, help us to take this table worthily you know, in a way that it glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.